The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Last week, uh, one of the things that uh, we talked about, uh, I put a question before this community, before each of us, and it was a question that John the Baptist actually put. Uh, Are you willing to live a turned lifestyle? John the Baptist came to prepare people to meet Jesus. And his message was simple, confess your sin and turn from sin and turn towards God. Uh, And turning just means you you can only walk life going in one of two directions. You can't be going in two directions at the same time. Although we try, it doesn't work. You can either be going this way or that way, not both at the same time. And we can either be walking our life towards um, God or away from God. And then we uh, met last week the most central person in this entire story, which is the person of Jesus. And very clearly in verse 1, it says this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And already I'm drawn into the story because if Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, and He is the Son of God, I'm already filled with questions of what is the Son of God like? If Jesus is God's son, his one and only son, then what is this son like? What will he do? What will he say? How will he behave? Who will he spend time with? Why did he come? How long will he be with us? And Mark unpacks all of these questions uh, over 16 chapters, uh, introducing us to the hero of the story, the central figure, the protagonist of the story, and his name is, is Jesus. Two questions that I'm going to ask of us as a community to look at, but two questions I'm asking of Jesus tonight. Uh, The two questions are this. uh, What are you doing, Jesus, and where are you going? Two very important questions here in chapter 1 of Jesus. What are you doing, Jesus? If you're the Son of God, why are you acting like that? And if you really are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, why are you going there? That's not the place the Messiah is supposed to be dwelling. So two simple but yet pretty um, uh, theologically very significant questions of Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus, where are you going? I don't know. Sunday night service is kind of weird, isn't it? It's like you've kind of forgotten about the week past. You've had the weekend to, you know, do your thing. And then you've got now Monday very quickly, rapidly approaching. So I don't know where you guys are, frame of mind, frame of heart, uh, but my desire as we would gather here on Sunday nights um, is that whatever you have going on in the outside world, that you would be able to connect with God in this space, in this time, in this place, so that your time, your connection here with God would impact the world uh, that you're about to embark uh, and go back to. Uh, So I just want to spend a minute uh, praying and allow you guys to pray. Uh, just quietly where you're sitting, and just if you're anxious, if you're tired, if you're stressed about what's coming up tomorrow, uh, what's coming up this week, just ask God, take these burdens and just let me hear your voice tonight. Let me hear your voice and have um, a genuine interaction uh, with God. So would you pray to that end? Father God, hear uh, just the prayers uh, of uh, the people of this community tonight.
God, I'm convinced you'd love to answer prayer. So I pray that all of these prayers that have just been offered up to you, uh, God, you would be good and see fit to answer these prayers tonight. And that we, as we would uh, take a look at your story, uh, the Holy Scriptures, that, uh, Father, we would have a clear understanding of what you would have to say to us in this place tonight so that when we would leave here, we would be very different, very different. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know people who are peculiar? Don't look at me and be like, yes, he's sitting in front of us. Like just people in your life who are just odd. They're kind of people that you scratch, scratch your head at and you're like, wow, I just, I'm not sure why they do what they do. and I'm not sure why they actually act and behave uh, like that. Like just, they're not doing anything evil per se or just anything destructive, but they're just people in your life. You're like, wow, they just, they really don't get it. And um, they're not mean, they're not cruel, that kind of stuff. Um, I had a roommate freshman year, Jason Cottrell. He'll never listen to this, so I'm, I feel very comfortable to talk about him behind his back. <laughs> he was uh, really uh, a, su- a sweet heart of a guy, if I can describe him like that. But he was one of those guys that was just like, wow, it was the weirdest year of my life living with him. And about 99% of what happened in our freshman year, I can't even tell you from where I'm sitting right now. It just wouldn't be right. He was uh, from Crawfordsville, Indiana. I'm just not sure if that even gives you... Um, a picture, but he was one of those who thought like having one of those tails in the back was kind of cool and watching NASCAR and shooting guns a lot and cats and microwaves went well together. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was one of these guys, uh, a good guy, but just a weird human. And so many times I was just like, wow, I would go and tell Kyle, I'd be like, you're not going to believe what Jason did. You're not going to believe what Jason said. This is what Jesus was like to his first century audience. Very peculiar. People were always like, wow, did he really just say that? Did he really just do that? People had expectations of what the Messiah, the Savior, was supposed to to look like, what he was supposed to do, how he was supposed to behave. And Jesus shows up on the scene and blows people's minds. The Savior's not supposed to do that, say that, go there, be there. Like the story that we're looking at tonight is Jesus in the Jordan and Jesus in the desert, two places that he should not have gone and been in. I know it might not be shocking or scandalous to us where we sit, but Jesus in the Jordan River and Jesus in the desert by himself was absolutely shocking to his first century audience. That's not how the Savior, Messiah, is supposed to to behave. If I was running a marketing campaign and I was going to launch Jesus out there and you're part of my marketing team, what would be our plan? Wouldn't we, if Jesus was about to launch into a very public ministry... Wouldn't you tell Jesus, you know, uh, let's take you right into the city. That's where all the well-to-do people are. Let's parade you in front of those people, in front of that crowd. Because if you get in well with the well-to-do people, they got cash. They got money. 
and they will use their money to support your ministry. So if I'm coming up with a, a marketing plan to promote Jesus, I'd put them in the city around some really well-to-do, educated people who have cash to support his ministry, right? Well, Jesus says, no, I'm going to go in the Jordan River and uh, take a bath with a bunch of other sinners. We don't really know much about Jesus until he steps onto the scene here, okay? His first real public appearance is when he hangs out in the Jordan River, okay? Jesus was uh, from a town called Nazareth, not even mentioned in the Old Testament, a very obscure village about 70 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. No one would generally even have a clue as to where this place was. The son of a Jewish carpenter. People don't really know who this guy Jesus is. But he's about to show up on the scene as the Messiah, the son of God. And you would think that he would want to have more of a launching pad to his public ministry than bathing in the Jordan River with uh, people getting baptized. Mark chapter 1 verse 9 says this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. They had to preface, it's around Galilee because most people are like, Nazareth? Where's Nazareth? It's kind of like Michigan. People are like, Michigan? Is that still in the United States? At the time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, my first question, what is Jesus doing? If Jesus is the Son of God, what on earth is the Son of God, the Messiah, why on earth is he getting baptized? I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but I want you to wonder tonight. People were coming to the Jordan River to confess sin, to get baptized is a, a very symbolic of I'm turning my life away from sin and turning it towards God. Why would the Son of God, who's already been called the Christ, the Messiah, why would he get baptized? Is he a sinner? Is this the first thing that we learn about Jesus, the Son of God, is that he's a sinner and before he can be launched into his very public ministry as the Messiah, that he needs to confess, that he needs to repent of his sin? Even Jesus, or even John the Baptist, this isn't in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's account. Even John, the Baptist, is kind of freaked out. He's thinking to himself, Jesus, um, you got this backwards. You should be baptizing me. I should not be baptizing you. What are you doing here? I can imagine if John the Baptist is thoroughly confused, the crowds are probably confused. And they're thinking, this is the Son of God? How disappointing. How disappointing that the Son of God is in the river with us. What's he doing? Matthew's account says this. Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 15. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. When John says, when Jesus says proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness, this is another way of Jesus saying, God has a purpose and God has a plan in all of this. And my mission, why I'm, I am here, is to fulfill all of God's purposes, all of God's plan. 
That is my heart. That is my commitment. That is my mission. Sent by God to accomplish God's will, his purpose, and he does it. He is obedient, even being baptized in a river for sin that he does not have. Now, this is a side note here, but a quick word on obedience. What Jesus models for us here in obedience is he's obedient. Not like in some things or in certain things or in certain areas, he is obedient. If you're going to be an obedient person, don't pick and choose when you'll be obedient. That's not obedience. Be obedient in all things, at all times, in every situation, in every circumstance. Picking and choosing when it's convenient and easy to be obedient doesn't count. That's not obedience. Jesus was obedient even by getting baptized here in the Jordan River. So one thing we learn about Jesus in the Jordan is that he's being obedient to God's plan for him. The second thing we learn about Jesus in the Jordan is that he identifies himself with sinful humanity. Who do we see Jesus hanging out with first? Remember, he's a very obscure figure for the first 30 years. We know about his birth. We know about something that happened in the temple when he was 12 years old. And then fast forward about 20 years. We don't know what Jesus did. So the first time we see Jesus show up, who does he identify with? Does he identify with sinners in the Jordan? Or does he identify with self-proclaimed saints hanging out on the edges of the Jordan River? They were the Pharisees, by the way. They were the ones... Nose lifted high, pointing their fingers, be like, yes, you're a sinner, I'm not. You need to be in the water, I don't. Thankfully, John, the Baptist, was like, no, you are a brood of vipers, you're snakes, you're venomous, and you're full of poison, you need to get in the water too. They didn't. But what I learn about Jesus by being in the Jordan is that he identifies first and foremost with sinful humanity in the Jordan. I find great comfort that Jesus, God's son, remember, this is God's son. Ask yourself the question, what is he going to be like? Who is he going to identify with? And the first community of people that we see Jesus identify with is the masses of people who have come down to the Jordan River to confess sin and to repent of their sin. This, to me, just says that God's son stands in the water next to sinners, which means God has a heart for sinners. He doesn't hate them. If God's son's first audience is to be in the river with sinful people, God does not hate sinners. One of my hopes is that as we journey through uh, the next few months walking through the, the gospel of Mark, is that your view and understanding of God would radically change. Because God continued to radically change, or Jesus continued to radically change how people saw God. People had God in this box of, no, because of the religious leaders led them astray. And God is like this, and God is, expects this. Jesus radically altered how people understood and viewed the person, uh, the being of God. John's baptism, this is, uh, I really hope that you catch this. His baptism, theologically, is really significant. Why? 
Thank you for asking. I was hoping someone was going to ask why it's so significant. Let me tell you why it's so significant. Jesus, he didn't have any sin to confess. So why is he in the water? Jesus is not only in the water standing next to me, identifying with sinful people. He is standing for me. He's not just standing with me. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, is standing for me in the Jordan River. Another picture is, he is standing there with me, for me, representing me, a sinner, to a holy God. 1 John uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it like this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in the Jordan is standing with me, for me, representing me to God. So if you are a person who has faith in Jesus, this is what it means to have faith in Jesus, that you are trusting that Jesus is your advocate. He is the one who stands in your place before a God who is absolutely perfect, a God who is absolutely holy. His perfect, sinless life stands for me so that I can stand with him. So that when God sees me, he sees Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus. Let me try another verse. First John, I started to mention it. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is in the river, standing next to me, for me, representing me to God. This is a really important question. Who is standing for you, with you, and for you before a holy God? Because we can have many options, right? It doesn't have to be Jesus. It could just be you. It could be someone else that you're really impressed with. It could be maybe a commitment to live a really good life and good works. That's what's standing for you. Who is standing with you and who is standing for you? An advocate between you and God. We can only stand before God if we are standing with the person of Jesus. Now, why does it have to be Jesus? This is where the story gets freaky, okay? I told you Mark is going to be like, there's lots of demons, there's lots of heaven opens up, there's lots of dead people who come back to life. This is our first turn. It was getting normal. We're just in the, in the river. Now this gets a little crazy. I'm answering the question, why does it have to be Jesus who stands for me? Verse uh, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Heaven is torn open. The Holy Spirit comes down, descends upon the person of Jesus. And a voice rocks the Jordan River. This is my son. I love him. I am well pleased. Has anyone ever experienced that? Heaven opening up, 
being literally torn apart. Now, one of the things that um, uh, I want to make clear, Jesus did not become God's son right here. Jesus was not confused as to his personhood. It wasn't like, oh, that's who I am. I've been trying to figure this out for the longest time. Thank you. Not sure where that voice came from, but thanks. Jesus was not at all confused as to who he was. He did not, at this age in his life, somewhere around 28, 29, become the Son of God. He knew clearly who he was. But God affirms his divine pleasure on his son's obedience. Not only for Jesus, but for the community, the crowds that were listening to him. Don't you love being affirmed? Don't you love when people just affirm something that you're doing? They smile on it. I remember when Kyla and I went on our honeymoon, uh, someone very generously gave us uh, free tickets to Maui. That will be my free gift to all the married couples getting just got engaged. And it was just me and Kyla, obviously, because it's a honeymoon. You don't travel with other people. And um, I, was, uh, I love the beach. I love the water. I'd never been to Hawaii. I'd never seen waves that were taller than my head. And one of my favorite things to do for the eight days that we were there, Kyla wanted to lay on the beach and just relax. But I wanted Kyla to watch me because I would literally run up and down in the beach and I would try and jump over the wave or jump through the wave or I would do some type of weird body surfing. And as soon as I like came up, my first thing I wanted to do, I turned around on the beach to see if Kyla was looking. I would do this for hours every afternoon. Kyla could not lay down on the beach to get a, a, an appropriate tan because she had to sit up just to smile at me, say, um, I saw that one, Michael. That was cute. That was good. I'm sure she was thoroughly annoyed, but it was such awesome affirmation of, I was like, did you see that one? Did, it was awesome. Isn't it awesome when people affirm you? I see this with my own kids now. They just love it when I just affirm them and say, I'm so proud of what you just did. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. The smile that comes upon their face when I just say, I love you. I'm so pleased with what you've just done. My son Tristan's raking leaves this morning, knocks on the window. Daddy, I made a big pile. I'm like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And he's just smiling. It's so incredible when people affirm us. And why I'm making a big deal about this, Jesus is doing the unthinkable, going to the Jordan River, and then God does the unimaginable. and says, that's my boy in the river. I love him. I am so pleased that he is standing among sinful people. I am so pleased and honored that he is being baptized right now. Heaven is torn apart. God's voice is, there's so much excitement, God cannot contain himself in heaven. He wants his son and everyone that is listening to know, that's my boy. Do you see him? He's my son. Do you see that he's standing with you and next to you, for you? It's such a great metaphorical picture that the heavens are torn apart when, because of Jesus. I have now access to God's voice and God's presence because of Jesus. I catch a picture, a glimpse of God breaking forth through heaven, not because of me in the water, but because of Jesus standing for me, with me in the baptism 
uh, the, the Jordan River. Such an amazing thing. God doesn't rebuke Jesus. He just recognizes and affirms that what Jesus is doing is a good thing. Before I move on to the next scene, because Mark really quickly says, before Jesus even got dried off, he's led into the desert. This is something that might just, if you read it too quickly, you might just miss. I just want to put this question, what do you think that did for John the Baptist? Okay, John the Baptist was a freak in the desert, eating really locusts, dressing like Obi-Wan Kenobi, screaming at the top of his lungs, repent. The guy did not have a very easy ministry. I'm sure there was many times along the way, he's like, really, this is what you want me to do? How blessed do you think John was when Jesus showed up and said, John, you baptize me? What do you think that did to affirm him? I can't imagine if John had any greater honor in his lifetime than taking Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his hands, dunking him underwater, and then bringing him back up. What do you think, God, how encouraged John the Baptist was because Jesus came and said, John, you baptize me. I share this with you because I just want you to know that when you are called of God to do something, when he makes very clear how he wants to use you, where he wants to use you, he will encourage you along the way. I don't know if some of you are just getting tired and the ministry that you're doing, whether it's in your workplace, in your home, and you're just growing totally burned out or just completely burdened. I just want you to know God is a God who will encourage you along the way. I can only imagine that did wonders for John's heart and soul. How many people do you think he probably told, I got to baptize Jesus? I'm sure he probably put over his camel clothing a big sign that says, I baptized Jesus. What would you do today? It's just amazing. God encourages us along the journey. So if you're in that place where you're just getting tired, just persevere. Let this be a word to you to be encouraged that God is with you. He's not abandoned you. He's completely for you. If he's called you, stay the course. Stay the course. I find it incredibly odd but strangely encouraging that Jesus went soaking from this incredible mountaintop high. Now he's led by the Spirit of God into the hot and dusty desert. So my second question is, first one was, uh, Jesus, what are you doing? And he's standing for you and for me. The second question that I'll finish with is, Jesus, where are you going? Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says this. At once, that means immediately, no delay. Like it happened as soon as he's still wet. At once, the spirit, okay, this is not a demonic spirit. This is capital S spirit, spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. Okay, when you're tempted by Satan, you're not tempted to do good things. Okay, you're tempted to do evil. Tempted by Satan for 40 days. 
He was with the wild animals. This doesn't mean he was in the zoo where he was like, wow, well, that looks like a nice cougar. Well, that mountain lion looks very friendly. Okay, the desert was a place of desolation. And so when Mark adds this little side note with the wild animals, this was not a safe place for Jesus nonetheless or anyone for that matter. He was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. Now, go back to my, uh, if you're going to promote the person of Jesus, okay? This is the time where you step in and say, Jesus, we can't top what just happened. Heaven's just opened. God came down and spoke. This is like, strike while the iron's hot. Go to the city right now. Like any marketing person will tell you, like when a person's hot, that's when you try and push them. Michael Phelps, anyone seen him recently? Nope. He was Saturday Night Live like a week after the Olympics. I've seen him on a couple, uh, uh, what are the cereal boxes, right? The iron is not so hot. A couple years from now, Michael Phelps will be back. Jesus was hot. This was the time. Jesus, go to the city. Start like whining and dining and mingling with the well-to-do. Thanks for hanging in the river, but now we've got to push you forth into your public spotlight. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God, not into the city, but into the desert to do battle with Satan for 40 days. That's a long time to be gone. Most people probably would have forgotten, like, yeah, that was a weird day back 40 days ago. Not sure what that was all about. 40 days is a long time. Second question for Jesus where on earth are you going? If you are the Son of God, which God has just said you are, don't go to the desert. There's nothing in the desert. Snakes. There's Satan. There's danger. There's desolation. There's isolation. There's nothing in the desert. Why on earth, Jesus, would you go? If you're familiar with a New Testament story, uh, Matthew spends a lot of time on this story, Jesus being tempted, uh, gives, I think, 11 verses. The Gospel of Luke gives 13 verses to this. Mark, two. A lot of people run to the Gospel of Matthew and be like, the whole reason that Jesus was tempted is so that when I get tempted, I just throw three verses at him and Satan will run out the door. That's a great lesson to be learned. But that is not why Jesus went into the desert and was tempted so that when I get tempted, I just know a couple verses to throw and then I'll stop being tempted. Again, lesson learned, but this is not the point of why Jesus went into the desert. Why did the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the desert? Two thoughts, and these are going to be, uh, um, I hope they uh, make sense and I hope they hit home because they're really crucial to understand why Jesus went into the desert. Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses, uh, refers to the person of Jesus as the second Adam. If you remember Adam, Adam was the first created being. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, he's referring to Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, meaning God created him. 
and after that the spiritual. The first man was of dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. The second man, meaning Jesus, became incarnated God in flesh. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are from heaven, are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, meaning we look human, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Okay, if that's a lot to take in, you're like, what does that have to do with Jesus now being in the desert? Jesus left the garden. Jesus left paradise. Jesus left uh, heaven to meet humanity in the desert so that he might take humanity back with him to be in the garden. I want you to catch this. Jesus, who was in heaven, stepped out of heaven to meet humanity where humanity is still currently living, in the desert, so that humanity would have faith and believe in Jesus, and Jesus would take those that would believe back to be in the garden, back to be in heaven in right relationship with God. The first Adam failed the garden test of temptation terribly. Because Adam failed, all of us have been in the desert since. Jesus, being the second Adam, God's one and only son, is tested in the desert. Why is this so important? If Jesus does not pass the test in the desert, if he gives in to the temptation to do evil, if he gives in to the temptation that Satan is coming at him to, to sin, it's end of story, end of game. We don't need a cross. We don't need a resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is no different than you or I. I really want you to catch this, why this is so important. Jesus went into the desert to be tested. If he passes the test, he can stand with me and for me before God because he is perfect, he is without sin, he is holy. If Jesus does not stand firm in the desert, humanity has no hope of ever returning back to the garden. I know this is maybe getting to be a lot, but I hope you catch this. If Jesus does not stand firm in the test in the desert, we've got no hope of ever getting out of the desert to go back and be in right relationship with God in Eden, in heaven. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says it like this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If Jesus does not stand firm in this desert temptation, desert testing, we do not have access to God. Just as we are, yet he was without sin. But because Jesus stood firm in the desert, we have access now to God. We can approach God in all confidence, that we have peace with him because Jesus stands not only with us, but Jesus stands for us. Are you glad that Jesus went to the desert? I don't know if you've ever thought about it. If you haven't, that's okay. Think about it now. 
Are you glad that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, went to the desert? Because the reason he went to the desert was for you and for me. I'm thankful that he was not immune to desert testing. I'm thankful that he did not ignore going to the desert to be tempted and to be tested. Jesus suffered. I don't want, you know, this desert, this 40 days in the desert, this was not a cakewalk. Okay, he had Satan coming after him. He wasn't eating for 40 days. He did not eat. He did not drink. And I'm pretty confident he probably didn't sleep that much either. I can't stand camping because it freaks me out. I hear weird sounds and I'm like, yep, that's why there's hotels. I can't imagine what it would be like in the desert for 40 days. No food, no water, wild animals roaming around. The isolation. And then on top of that, Satan. Icing on the cake. God's adversary, God's enemy is coming after the sun. And he's coming hard. Because if the second Adam, Jesus Christ, fails the test, no hope for humanity. Hebrews chapter 2 says it like this. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus went through the desert, I can take great comfort when I pass through the desert. Anyone ever feel like your life is literally living in the desert? You feel like the attacks are just, they never end. You feel like the wild animals, a.k.a. the wild people, will never stop barking and yapping at you. You feel the loneliness. You feel the isolation. No one wants to live in the desert. But I take great comfort in the reality that because Jesus has gone through the desert, successfully navigated his way through, if I trust him, he knows the way and I follow him. I love the last part of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. He is able to help those who are being tempted. If you're in the desert, you're not alone. Jesus went in the desert and went through an insane attack. And if you're in the desert, the only person that can ultimately help you is the person of Jesus because he lived there, he navigated his way through successfully, and if we trust him and follow, he can lead us out. Now, you might be there for 40 days. You might be there for 80. You might be there for five years. Point being, you don't stand alone. Isn't it interesting that no one followed him? If I was there that day, I'd be kind of curious, where's he going? If this is really the Son of God and heaven opened up, God's voice just spoke, why on earth didn't anyone follow him? The only
only reason we even know about this temptation is because Jesus saw fit to tell the disciples about what happened in the desert for 40 days. There was no one there. Why was no one there? Wasn't anyone even curious? Wow, that's the Son of God. He's heading out into the desert. What's he going to do out there? I'm kind of curious to go find out. There was no, like, search and rescue mission. Like, after a week, like, hey, where's the Son of God? What? He disappeared. Why didn't anyone go looking for him? I would love to imagine if I was there, I'd be that adventurous. But if I look at my life now, I'm not always that adventurous. I love to follow Jesus when it's safe, it's easy, it's convenient, and it's a guaranteed sure thing. Follow Jesus into the desert? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't sign up for that. Why didn't anyone follow? Why doesn't anyone still follow? Following Jesus means that, following him, wherever he leads, whenever he leads. And if it is in the desert, (laughs) then no, he's been there. He's navigated his way through successfully. Because of that, he offers mercy and help to those who are there. Finish with this uh, thought. How many times when Jesus was in the desert do you think he replayed what God told him? I'm guessing probably at least 300 times each day. I could be off by a few, but I'm guessing every day he had on just, he probably TiVo'd it, right? And he just kept replaying, I know who I am. I am God's son. I am greatly loved, and he is well pleased with me. It's not a coincidence that this incident where Jesus is baptized and heaven splits, he hears the voice, and then he goes into the desert. I guarantee that that was one of the things that continued to sustain Jesus through his great suffering in the desert, was the voice of God in his life saying, I am well pleased with you, son. I love you. Nothing about his personhood changed, his geography changed, but nothing about God's affection and God's love for him changed. If you are in the desert right now, your geography may have changed, but if you are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then please know that even if you are in the desert, you are still a son of or a daughter of God. And he greatly loves you, he is pleased with you, and smiles upon you. When in the desert, listen to God's voice spoken over you. And if you're tempted, by the way, Jesus didn't sin. And just so you know, you don't have to either. So many of us, we get tempted, we're like, ah, man, I got no other options. I guess I'll just give in. Forgiveness will always be there tomorrow. If you are tempted, you do not have to sin. There is always an escape. My friend Joe is a black belt. One of the first rules they will teach you in fighting is if your opponent ever gets you in a hold, there is always an escape. 
There is always a way to get out. It might not be comfortable. It might be painful. But there is always a way to get out. If you are being tempted to do evil, to sin, there is always an escape. There is always a way out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says it like this. Paul is looking back to Israel and saying, these people went through their desert years and we should learn from them. These things happened to them as examples and we and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You don't have to sin. There is an escape. Take the escape. Even if you're in the desert, you don't have to sin. Even if you're in isolation and you're feeling completely overwhelmed and burdened and scared and freaked out, lonely, you don't have to sin. There is always, there is always an escape. Why? Because God says there is. And if God says there's an escape, there's an escape. You have to choose to take it, though. This is Jesus in the Jordan, and this is Jesus in the desert. Who is standing with you? And who is standing for you? If you cannot in all honesty say, Jesus, then you need to make that decision tonight to say, Jesus is the person who's going to stand with me and stand for me before a holy God. If you've made that decision, then would you celebrate tonight as we would take communion here a second? And would you just give thanks to Jesus that he stood in the Jordan for you? That he represents you to a holy, perfect God. But if you don't have Jesus standing for you, you don't have anyone standing before you, ultimately before God. Make the decision to say, Jesus, I want to trust that your sinless life will bring me into right relationship, a peaceful relationship with God. Jesus in the Jordan and then Jesus led to the desert. If you are in the desert, Jesus has been there. He's navigated his way through. Trust him and follow. Even if it's still remaining in the desert. Your prayer as we close tonight just might be, Jesus, please reaffirm your voice, your affection, your love. Comfort me in this season, in this time, in this place. Father God, I thank you so much that Jesus did the unthinkable, that he went to stand in the river with sinners. I thank you that he chose to identify with sinful humanity and that he stands with us, but he stands for us. Father God, if there's someone here tonight, maybe few, maybe many, that have not made that decision to have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, stand before them and you, God, might they make that decision right now to ask Jesus Christ to be the one 
to be their advocate before you, God. Father, if there's probably many here tonight who feel like the desert is never ending and they've been in it for a long time, Jesus, would you bring comfort and would you bring a renewed sense of trust that we can trust you, that you went to the desert, you were without sin, that if we follow you, you know the way out. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.